You are listening to the Freedom Fellowship audio podcast from Freedom Fellowship Church in Tontytown, Arkansas. Our mission is to love God, love others, and serve both. And now let's listen in to this week's sermon. Okay, so we're looking at Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to his estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, what do you think he will do to those farmers? The religious leaders replied, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. Then Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. And let's go ahead and stop right there for the time being. So what this looks like, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He is in the temple. He is teaching. He is, at this point, mere hours away from his death, his humiliation, and his his arrest prior to that. So what he's doing is he has cleansed the temple. He is beginning to teach and preach the gospel. He is performing miracles. He is healing. He is doing what Jesus does. He's doing that in the temple. But you have the religious people, the religious elite, the Jewish leaders watching, saying, I don't like what this guy is teaching. I don't like what he's doing. He's taking people away from me. He's taking away my power and my influence. So they don't like him. So when he tells this parable, they're sitting there listening and they're like, ooh, he's talking about us. That's what they're thinking. So that's kind of the, the setup for this. And for, for Bible study purposes, if you're a, a word nerd like me, if you love to study the Bible, Just jot down in your margin Isaiah chapter 5, and this will really help us kind of understand this. For the sake of time, we're not going to look through Isaiah 5, but I encourage you, if you want to study that out, look at Isaiah 5 in reference to this. So Jesus tells this parable about the owner, the vineyard, the workers, the son, all of that kind of stuff. It's not very difficult to see what Jesus is talking about. For us as New Covenant believers here in 2021, reading this, we can 
pretty much see clear as day what Jesus is talking about. So let's go through it. The vineyard in this parable is God's kingdom. God the Father owns this vineyard, this kingdom. The vine dressers or the tenant farmers is, anybody want to guess? Israel. Israel are the people who are working it, they're doing the thing, right? They're doing it, but they also have, they feel that they have the lion's share of the right to do anything that they want to do. The owner, of course, is God the Father. The son, surprise, surprise, is Christ himself. Now, I want to be very, very clear about this, that when we look at this, uh, look at, again, at verse 43. I think we have it up there. Yep. It says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Now, the reason this is important to really kind of pause and, and look at this is we need to know what he's talking about, but also what he's not talking about. This is not talking about replacement theology. This is it's surprisingly very popular in a lot of Christian circles. But basically, replacement theology says, you know what? The Lord is done completely with Israel. No more, there is no second chance for Israel. The church has replaced Israel. And they look at a parable like this, and it's easy to see that. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Israel, and given to a nation that will produce proper fruit, the church. It's easy to draw that conclusion, but that's not what he's talking about. Replacement theology has one flaw, one major flaw in it. A Jew today, today, can still come to Christ. They can come to salvation in Christ. If God was truly done with Israel saying, nope, turning my back on you forever, a Jew today could not pray and receive Christ as Lord and Savior, but they can. So the argument for replacement theology, out the window. God's grace is available to every person on this planet should they choose to accept it. Again, replacement theology says Israel, God is done with them forever. The new, new kid in town is going to be the church itself. It's not a one or the other. It's actually both. That's how God's grace works. Another thing to point out about that, the Lord does not go back. The Lord does not renege on his covenants. It is an everlasting covenant. Read it in Genesis 12 with Abram. That is a forever and ever and ever and ever plus one. God will never go back on that. So you can't say, well... You guys did wrong, so God changed his mind, and he's done with you forever. That's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is the rejection of Christ as Messiah by the nation of Israel, including the religious elites. Again, God will not go back on his covenant, but Jesus came and said, I'm not coming to do away with the law. I'm coming to fulfill the law. So this new covenant of grace that he was bringing through his death, burial, and resurrection 
is a new, and as Hebrews says, an even better covenant, saying, if you place your faith in me, I am the redeemer of mankind. The law is not the redeemer. I am. That's what Jesus was talking about. And he said that you guys are rejecting this. But look again at verse 43. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. The word for nation is the Greek word ethnos. That's where we get ethnicity or ethnic. It refers to a people, a tribe. It is talking about the church. There is, or, or really Gentiles, if you look at it. So we have this. So Jesus tells them this parable. He says, here's this parable of the wicked tenant farmers uh, or the parable of the landowner. He's telling them this. They're starting to ooh, get their toes stepped on. They're like, he's talking about me. Ooh, ouch. But what he does, and I, I love little things like this. Jesus even kind of digs, kind of grinds some salt in that wound when he says, now keep in mind, these religious experts, they know basically the entire Old Testament backwards and forwards and upside down and all of that kind of stuff. They know the scriptures. And I love when Jesus says something like this. Look at verse 42. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? Meaning, do you not know about this? And then what he does is he references Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. And we see that right there in verse 42. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. So the psalmist who wrote this many, many years before Jesus references here, talking about the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Now, I want you to see how the entire Bible fits together. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. This should be a very, hopefully a very familiar phrase if you've read through the New Testament. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse number 19. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Watch this. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So, let's look at, I'm going to try to do this backwards. Over here you have Psalms written way back when. The, the stone that the builders rejected, the cornerstone. Move to Jesus' time. The Gospels, the time of the Gospels. You have Jesus referencing this over here. But you also have, further down the line, the Apostle Paul writing in Ephesians, talking about what Jesus referenced that was also in Psalms. But let's take it one step further and go further down that timeline. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. 
The Apostle Peter says this, you are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priest. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am, pleasing, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem chosen for great honor. And anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust in him recognize the honor God has given to him. But those who reject him, here it is from this furthest point, referencing all the way back in Psalms, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes him fall. So, just to recap, Psalms, the Gospel, Paul's writing, Peter's writing, all of it, the common thread is who Christ is. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the one that the builders have rejected. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 21. In verse 43, Jesus says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Verse 44, anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. Now, is that Jesus being a big old baddie and coming to get you if you don't fall in line? No. But I think this is my understanding that this is a paradox. This is a dual meaning type of thing. And let me show you what I'm talking about. When it says anyone who stumbles over that, the stumblers in this account are the, the Jewish religious leaders. Why? Because they do not obey God's word. They think that they've got a lot on it, a lock on it. So they meet the fate that was planned for them, which is God's righteous judgment. So when I talk about it being a paradox, let me read it again. Verse 44, anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone that it falls on. This could be, we can be crushed under the weight of our own sinfulness when we come to Christ. And I don't want to gloss over that fact. And I know there's a lot of uh, saved people in here. But this is for the people that we disciple outside of these walls. When we get to that point, when we understand the weight of our own sinfulness, I personally had to get there, and it broke me. I was a puddle, snot, everything coming out of my head because I understood my own sinfulness. And that just amplified the need for Christ even more. So when it's talking about being crushed under the weight um, of that stone, when I came to Christ, that's where I was. I know it's, it may not be that way for everybody, but for me, I understood just how sinful I was, but also how gracious the Lord was. So that's one side of it. But also the weight of judgment that will, that will crush us if we don't accept Christ. So verse 44 really has, has a dual meaning, at least in my mind, that if we don't accept Christ, there is judgment that's coming. 
And so look at verses 45 and 46, and I need to pick up the pace a little bit here. Look at their response. Let's look at 45 and 46. It says, When the leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. So, number one, they were offended. They're like, <gasps> how dare you talk about moi? What? You can't do that. I'm up here. I'm a religious elite. You can't do that. But they wanted to arrest him. This is what you're going to see here uh, in, in, as we continue to go through Luke. You're going to see that it was such a hatred for Christ that they tried to do everything to silence him, to keep him from doing what he was doing. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid that the crowds would revolt and say, no, no, he is a prophet. Get your hands off him. Then they would get swallowed up. And the, the people considered him, like I said, to be a prophet. So let's jump over to Luke chapter 20. This is kind of our, our home is in Luke's gospel. Let's jump over to Luke 20, verse 20. And I want you to see how Luke records their response. So Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 20. This is the same account, just in, in Luke's gospel. It says, and so they watched him closely. They sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could hand him over to the jurisdiction and the authority of the governor. Their plan was to stop his influence. They wanted him to supposedly stop poisoning the minds of all of their minions who were good about paying their taxes and paying uh, temple taxes and, and fees like that. So that's what they did. They sent spies in to listen, be like, ah, okay, yep, we're, we're going to get him. But they go on. Look at verse 21 of Luke 20. And the spies question him, saying, again, not, not for genuine, true understanding and true godly teaching. They were trying to trip him up. They were trying to get him to stumble so that they could arrest him. So they didn't really want to know the answer. They just wanted to catch him. And the spies questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you, speech, that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to anyone. But you teach the way of God on the basis of truth. Is it permissible for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And I love verse 23. But he saw right through their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a statement in the presence of the people. And they were amazed at his, answers, at his answer and said nothing. He shut those haters up by turning their question. They were trying to trick him. And he kind of turned it back, flipped it around. And they're like, oh, well, I got nothing to say. That's the perfect answer. They were trying to 
uh, to trick him because it was considered a poll tax to Rome. Remember, Rome occupied Israel. Rome allowed the Jews to kind of do their thing, but under the occupation, this was a citizen tax directly to Rome, not a Jewish tax. So you pay your taxes to Rome. That'd be like paying your federal taxes and then state taxes here uh, would be an equivalent of that. If he would have said yes, then they could say, see, you prioritize a foreign power versus a local power, so you're working for the enemy. That's what they were hoping that he would say. But if he said no, so again, the, the question was, is it permissible for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If you say yes, then, oh, you, you kissing up to the boss over there in Rome. But if he said no, then they could accuse him of sedition, which is inciting people to rebel against a ruling nation. So if he said yes, they could get him. If he said, nope, it's not legal to pay taxes to Caesar, they would be like, uh-huh, see, he's trying to start a revolt. Hey, Rome, come get him. This is one of the baddies. But his answer was, pay the things to Caesar, which are Caesar's. Pay the things to God, which are God's. He silenced them. He found flaws in their logic, but most importantly, he knew their hearts. These spies, they pretended to be righteous. They came and listened to the teachings of Christ, thinking the crowd probably thought, oh, look at these guys. They're taking notes. Boy, they're, they're really into this. Uh, they are there to trip him up. He knew that. He knew their hearts. But this was not the last time that they would try this. I have a slide for it, and you can just look up here. This is Luke 23. I'm getting ahead of the story here. But this is Luke 23, starting in verses 1 and 2. I think I've got it. Let me read it. It says, Then the entire assembly of them set out and brought him before Pilate. This is after his arrest. They began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming that he is a Messiah, the Messiah, a king. That's Luke 23. That's when they arrest him. Who's lying? We just read the, the true account. Jesus said, pay the things to Caesar, which are Caesar's, the things to God, which are, to God, which are God's. But they lie in verse 2. This man has been leading our people astray, telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government. That's not a fib. That's a lie. That is a lie right there. So the magic question, so what? So what does this parable, what does this mean to us? And I want to focus on two things. What this says about the father and what this says about the son. So when we look at the parable of the wicked tenant farmers, what does it say about the father? Two things. He is a God who loves us enough to send Christ to redeem us. So go back and look at the parable. The owner sent the son as an act of grace and mercy towards them, saying they will respect my son. Well, Israel did not respect them respect him. But God loves us enough to send Christ 
to die on our behalf. But the other thing that it says is that God will, God will execute judgment. He will. Thanksgiving was this week. Some of us, we have unsaved people in our families. This is a great time to present the gospel to them. Why? Because God will execute judgment. He will at some point. We don't want them to be on the wrong side of that. So God will execute judgment, and he loves us, like I said, enough to send Christ to redeem us. The thing to, to, for us to keep in mind, God is not only a loving God. That's a very popular message that you hear in a lot of churches, a lot of pulpits around the country, is God is love, God is love, God is love, God is love. Yes, that is true, but God is also a righteous God. He demands righteousness. He will execute judgment. So some people have a false view of God if they say, oh, well, a loving God couldn't execute judgment. Yeah, he can. He is a righteous God who is a loving God and who will execute judgment. But also, the second part to this, what does this say about Christ? When we look at this parable and then the paying of the taxes, what does this say about Christ? That he is the redeemer of mankind. He is the Messiah. Whether we like it or not, he is the Messiah. He also tries to warn people about what will happen. Then it is their choice. When he is doing this teaching about the kingdom, again, he's talking about the kingdom of God in this parable. He is teaching the people, saying, there is a kingdom of God. You can be a part of it. He is trying to warn people that judgment will happen, but it's ultimately up to their choice. He also knew that they were out to get him. He knew how all of this was going to end. He knew that they were going to lie and, and do all this kind of stuff to where eventually he is arrested and he is crucified. But here's the thing. He showed mercy to them through his teaching. And it, it took me a second to really kind of pick up on that. But as he's teaching this, they're hearing it. Like I said, you can either choose to hear it, accept it, or reject it completely. So despite knowing how the story was going to end, Christ showed mercy on them by teaching them the truth about God's kingdom. They were listening to it, and they can have one of two responses. Either hear it and accept it and take it to the bank, or they can continue living for themselves and continue to do their own thing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that went forth here today. Father, I thank you that this passage or these passages here this morning, just they help us understand how the entire Bible Christ is the focus of it. That even back in Psalms, you were talking about the person of Christ that was to come. We saw Christ teaching that, and we see that backed up by Paul and Peter. And Father, we thank you 
for your grace and your mercy that you extended to us in the form of Jesus Christ, that you are the owner of this vineyard, that you sent your son for us because you love us. And Father, we thank you for the sacrifice that Christ made on that cross, that your grace, your love, and your mercy was extended to us through him. And that as we leave here today, Father, if we have not accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we do so. That we make it an urgent plea for our friends, our family, for everyone who has not yet accepted him, that we do so. That we make it a priority because you are a loving God, but you also execute your righteous judgment. And Father, we want everyone that we know, co-workers, family, neighbors, people on the street, we want them to come to the saving grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they can be set free the way that he has set each and every one of us free. Father, we thank you for these things. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Freedom Fellowship audio podcast. We are located at 990 West Henry de Tonti Boulevard in Tontytown, Arkansas. You can check us out on the web at freedomfellowship.com or you can find us on social media by searching Freedom Fellowship NWA. We hope you have a great week and that you live out the mission of the church, which is to love God, love others, and serve both.